Hello and welcome to Raising the Bar. I am your host, Darren Mulcahy, and today I am delighted to be joined by David Nolan. How are you, David? I am very well. Thank you, Darren. It's a pleasure to be on. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for giving up your time. Um, David is a, a well-versed GA coach, strength and conditioning coach, and uh, just performance coach in general, to be honest. And I'm going to give David a chance to introduce himself in just a moment. But tonight, what we're going to be covering is what I'm kind of terming as the big rocks of strength conditioning for a GA athlete. So myself and David are going to jump into some topics around what uh, strength conditioning tools will apply best to a GA player. Okay, and as I said, David is a fantastic person to have on because he's got a vast experience in the field of strength conditioning and performance in general. Okay, so just some of uh, David's accolades uh, include he's the founder of Synapse Performance, or Synapse, we pronounced that slightly wrong. <laughs> um, he's also a PhD student in UCD, and he is the head of performance for Rugby Academy Ireland, okay, along with having worked with numerous GA teams and being quite a high-level mar martial arts competitor too, David, am I right? Yeah, in a former yeah. life, yeah. In yeah, a former life. life. Yeah. <laughs> so, David, would you mind giving just a brief background to anyone listening on yeah exactly your your background in your own competitive nature but also from a professional standpoint what exactly you do sure thing so yeah as you said i'm a kind of i suppose a jack of all trades i don't know about being a master of any but i'm a strength and conditioning coach and sports science consultant i suppose is what i work so my work is is fairly varied and spread across different disciplines so academically my undergrad is sports science then currently pursuing a PhD in DCU with Brendan Egan. And the area that looks at is something that we call reproducibility and heterogeneity of response, which sounds more complex than it is. Basically, I look at if we do the same thing to the same person twice or more times, do we get the same result? And if not, why? And more, what's of more interest to me then is if we give the same stimulus or so same training or nutrition um, strategy, our approach to two different people, the identical strategy, why do we not get the same response in those two different people? So what are the drivers that um, cause us to respond differently to exercise? So that's what I do in um, DCU. As you said, I founder at Synapse Performance. So that's a coaching and a sports science consultancy company. So through that, I consult to a few different companies in terms of sports science development and content production. The most prominent one of those being Applift probably, which is a, um, a sports tech startup company based out of UAE and we, um, I'm their research and development officer and do kind of help them implement sports science strategies into their software and help them with that and then also some of the science communication aspects of that. Um, outside that, then you said I'm head of performance at Rugby Academy Ireland, so I look after everything there in terms of strength and conditioning, sports science collection, data collection and analysis. Um, outside of that... I think I think that has covered pretty much all my roles. Um, currently, during lockdown, I'm still doing all those to a, a lesser capacity, and have found myself in one of the COVID labs at the moment. So I'm doing I'm working as a helping out as a laboratory analyst, doing the basically when the swabs come in, testing them. That's that's what I'm doing at the moment. So it it I didn't think when I started sports science that I'd ever have the skills that someday I could be put to use with something like that. But that that's what's occupying my time at the moment. So. Yeah, pretty varied what I do, straddle both the academic side and the applied side, and somehow I'm still bluffing my way through and haven't been found out yet. 
I I'm always really impressed with lads that can do both the practical and uh, the academic side. I had your good friend Arthur Lynch on a couple of weeks ago, and he's another good example of it. Um, Arthur is, opposed, uh, is of course a, a coach, high level coach, but he's equally as um, an impressive a lifter as a coach. Like so, I'm I'm always amazed by those guys that are able to learn it, apply it in their coaching, and then apply it to their own training. Um, they're the kind of people that only really walk the walk and they talk the talk. Yeah, uh, so uh, yeah, it, uh, it makes a big difference. I think in the area I'm in, applied sports sciences, that having that coaching and athletic background to some degree influences the way I think or conceptualize in terms of the research. Where if you didn't have those insights into the research, you end up asking the wrong questions. I think because there's so many times I'd be presented with conceptual things or people that have theories like oh if we did this you know if we if you use this strategy and I was like you've never stood in a rural GA mm-hmm. um, gym with 30 lads 28 of whom think you're a fucking idiot and just want to do bicep <laughs> curls for half an hour I was like try go implement that with those guys and see how it goes down <laughs> and it's, it's it's so important to have the understanding between both like and don't get me wrong I don't think every coach has to have a background in GA or high level sport to be successful I do not no, think no, that no. Um, but I do think it an understanding of the type of person you're dealing with is really really important yeah just, just some some common sense I think because I, I get a few people messaging me and usually I just refer them to other people that know more than me but be like oh um I'm looking to get experiences at SNC. I want to work at a high level, elite level. Um, what do you think it's doing? Where I recommend go into a rural GA team and do SNC for those. Because if you can handle those guys, you can pretty much handle anyone. As like, it, because if you can go into, you'll have 30 guys of extremely varied ability and also extremely variable personalities um, that will challenge you as a coach. I think that's where the application or the difficulty in application tends to hit you a lot where you read the books, you understand periodization, you understand reps and sets and how to develop these traits. And then you go in and you're just bombarded with personalities and the human element of coaching that people often neglect. And we learn too late. You can't learn that from a book as such. You have to just get into the trenches and kind of learn the hard way. Baptism by fire sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And, um, fair play to you on on giving up your time and working as a as a la- in the labs at the moment. You're on the on the front line, keeping us all. I wouldn't. Board. It's I I I've had a few people in the lab I had maybe contention with where they're like, oh, we're frontline workers. I'm like, we're not really. We're you know we've the best of gear, the protective gear. Like by right, if we follow all lab procedures, there should be zero risk of us contracting anything. Okay. Whereas I I just I wouldn't like to say frontline because. The doctors and nurses who are on the cold face um, and getting paid very little for it in a lot of cases, um, they're, they're proper front line, so I wouldn't insult them by putting myself in the same bracket. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, it's, 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 a, it's a great cause. And uh, before, we, before we jump into things, David is actually Ireland's first farm fit athlete. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 <laughs> it's the rural knockoff, the CrossFit. <laughs> so if you haven't been following him on Instagram, he's been using all sorts of implements found in the farmyards. Uh, What's like social media is something I'll never really understand. Where I try to put out good content, educational content, put and I've been doing that for a few years. I put out the video of me doing track pull-ups off the loader of a tractor. 
it's the most engagement and likes I've got on a post in the last 12 months when I looked at the stats. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is apparently what people want. I was like, people don't want the educational stuff. People want me pulling, doing pull-ups on the track. I was yeah. like, I don't understand human nature. Uh, Zurcher squats with a link to timber, nothing better. <laughs> That's it. It's all, all you can do. You just have to get creative. No, but I, I, the reason I'm doing that kind of stuff is I, I don't really enjoy home training. I find it difficult to get motivated for home training so i have to make it kind of fun and challenging to myself so i'm just walking around looking at stuff like hmm could i lift that i don't know i'm just like (laughs) trying to figure out whether i can lift stuff or not and what way i can lift it so that's the only way i can kind of keep myself doing a bit and tipping away at stuff like and realistically this is the last thing before we start but if it if you're a man who wants to know and part of his training is getting strong you're far better off picking up something, picking up something awkward and heavy, and you're trying to, to move up and down with it as opposed to doing ten thousand bodyweight squats. Oh yeah, and that's that's the last point. You're better off picking up something. The more awkward it looks, the better. And it seems just just to hold it. Pick up something um, awkward, and if it's easy enough to hold up, walk twenty foot with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Doesn't have to be. Sometimes, sometimes the the simplest things can be the most effective things, can't they? Yeah. Oh, 100 percent. Okay, so we get cracking into our topic for tonight, which was um, big rocks of a successful GA athlete and in terms of like physical, physical performance. Okay, so strength conditioning point of view, what are the main facets that a GA athlete needs to be successful? Okay, um, there's many like components of fitness, I suppose you could call them. And as we were just chatting before we got on, it can sometimes be a little bit confusing. There's so much coming in and there's so many different opinions. Um, so David, in your opinion, um, where do we start for a GA player? Where, what's the, the lowest hanging fruit? Um, well, I'm probably shooting myself in the foot with the first one. The lowest hand, hand, hanging fruit is your skills, essentially. If, you know, if you're not that skillful and there's some basic skills you need to work on, they're probably going to improve your performance much better than the newest S&C trend. Um, so that's, that's what it is. So if you can't, if you can't tackle properly, that's probably in GA in general. If you can't tackle properly, which most people can't, learning how to tackle will, as either a forward or a defender, the, if you get good at turning someone over, at being able to accurately tackle, I think that is huge for performance. So, but we'll, we'll step, step back from that. So say we'll just assume you're skillful. Lowest hanging fruit with um, GA players. So there's probably a few. Body composition tends to be a big one. Um, a lot of guys will put in a lot of work trying to get stronger, working on sprint mechanics, working on all this type of um, movements in the hope to get faster. Because most GA players you speak to want to get faster. If you ask their priorities, I'd like to be a bit more agile, a bit more speedy. Where, yes, you know, getting stronger, working on your sprint and all that, it's crucial to that as well. But I just find most GA players are carrying too much body fat, essentially. Um, I wouldn't even worry about the. when you're a younger guy it's different as a teenager it's different adolescence because what we tend to see is um more borne out from all the soccer data we have but when you look at adolescents when they go through the lifespan they get leaner as they get older as in their body fat percentage comes down but their body fat content so the amount say in kilos of body fat they have actually remains pretty constant throughout the um teenage years it's just the increase in muscle mass and then the ratio changes and they get leaner because of that so if you're an adolescence player you're probably better off just focusing on building up a bit of muscle and not worry about oh i need to eat less to get leaner just build the muscle and it'll generally take care of itself 
Now, if you're properly overweight or obese or whatever, maybe that's a different thing, but just in general. But I'd say body composition is a big one because most guys, yes, you could spend a year or two working on your strength, your power and your speed in terms from the physical aspect, or you could spend a couple of months dropping five kilos of body fat you have, which people probably only realize how much of a hindrance it is when they get that bit leaner or they lean out and then they feel all of a sudden, okay, I'm much faster, I'm quicker off the mark, I can turn quicker, um, my joints and everything just feels easier when I'm running, I don't tire as quickly because you know if you're carrying around a heavier body and essentially excess body fat, which is, now you know, adipose has functions, but essentially when you have too much of it, it's just sitting there, it's not doing any benefit, it's not contractile tissue, it's not producing force, it's just an extra bit of weight and resistance that you have to lug around with any movement you do. And what that leanness looks like is, is probably a bit exaggerated um, in social media. So I think everyone's perception of what lean is, is, is heavily distorted. You don't have to be shredded. When we look at the elite level county players, we have a good bit of data on what their normal bodies look like. So what the body of an inter-county player looks like. And this is done by DEXA, so it should be a gold standard measurement of body composition. And we see that most inter-county players are somewhere between 80 to 84 kilos in weight and about 14 to 15% body fat. Now, anyone that's familiar with what that looks like, it's, it is lean by normal standards. That's a lean individual, but it's not what you'd expect to see, say, on stage. It's not someone who's shredded, you know, the veins popping. It's, it's a reasonable, attainable level of leanness that people should be aiming for. So that's what most county players are. Now, unfortunately, I'm one what was it, 171 centimeters in height most inter-county players are 180 centimeters um in, in height or there thereabouts so you can judge that if that's what height you are most guys that are on county panels are 80 to 84 kilos at around 14 15 percent body fat so if you're not in that range and you really want to improve your performance body composition is probably one of the things that you need to work on and you can kind of judge if you need to gain muscle or lose weight based upon those normative values now, obviously, there's going to be people that are outliers uh, on either end of that, but that's mainly the, where the average um, people sit. So I think that would be the first thing I'd be looking at in terms of body composition. And I don't know if you've noticed the same, Dara, but anyone that spends time around teams, and especially I've been lucky enough to work in both county setups and club setups, one of the drastic things is you rarely see someone on a county team that's carrying excess body weight. They're all lean. And even think of all the, the think of all the quick boys on your own teams and um, everything like that. Most of the guys who are quick and have great endurance and go all late, they're lean. They're not carrying extra body fat. Now we do come across those guys that seem to be three, four stone overweight, but somehow still have a bit of pace in them. Um, but they they're very much the exception and not the rule. Yeah, and. They probably fall in that bracket of being probably slower movers, but probably faster thinkers, and they make up for it with their with their levels of skill. Um, yeah, that you spoke about. Space, yeah, exactly. You spoke about it earlier on that skill is the number one kind of aspect to a successful GA player. So they're probably like really high up on that. Um, and like what you were saying, David, on that body fat, I agree one hundred and ten percent. And it's funny, like the, the number one thing that it can prove. Know, a physical performance is something that's going to be primarily come back to their nutrition and their diet and yeah. like so it, like you say if, if a GA player was just to focus on nothing else in the off season only getting themselves a little bit leaner 
it would carry over far much more than spending endless hours in the gym. And hundred uh, percent. And that's that's one thing we try to encourage with any of our athletes in the off season because preseason should not be a time to make up for damage or to undo damage done in the off season. It should be a time to push your fitness and your um, performance levels on higher. So ideally what you want is when you finish a season that you come back to the next preseason in around the same condition that you left the old season in. Now, obviously you'll have been probably doing less training. I generally recommend to just change the type of training and take up, say, different forms of activity, different forms of exercise, just for a break, a mental break. But you don't want to undo all the work done that season that you come back for preseason and you spend eight weeks only getting back to where you were at the end of the previous season. And then by that time you're in season, you can't train as hard. You have more matches. You have to look after your readiness levels. Whereas if you finish the season, maintain that fitness, keep body composition in check, then you can hit preseason hard and spend eight weeks and be better than you were at the same stage the year before. And that's what you're looking to do is year on year, get better at, at the same point every year that you're better than you were at that same point the year previous. Tack that together for you know, five, six, seven years in a row and you've come in, you've probably developed into a really high-level um, footballer at that stage. Yeah, and like for me, like just like what you said, that they start the year, the preseason in as good a shape as they possibly can. Not to start the preseason in as worse shape as possible and spend the first six weeks puking into the ditch yeah. and making drastic diet changes and then, you know, we're not recovering from training. You don't have enough energy for training and you're shooting yourself in the foot. Okay. So for me, anyway, what I like to say to the players is use that preseason, like you said, to work on something a bit different and the body composition could definitely fall into that bracket. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's, a, it's really, it is hard to, to drop body weight substantially in the middle of like championship mode. I think. When, yeah. And the, the problem is we know that to lose body fat, to reduce body weight, body mass, we have to be in a, calorie deficit so we have to consume less calories than we're um, expending the problem with that is when you put yourself in a caloric deficit your recovery capacity goes down your performance may take a dip your injury risk goes up your potential for illness um, and just general infection can increase they're all the things we want to do the opposite of in our run-up to championship or whatever it may be so I think if you, you want to spend most of your season at maintenance or even a little bit higher in a surplus for the energy demands of the sport to be um, satisfied. So if you put yourself into a deficit in season, you're shooting yourself in the foot, as you said. You're given, I say, you're, it's something that's within your control that you're allowing to potentially be harmful to your performance. Oh, that's, that's, that's spot on. And, and it doesn't really matter in the off season. Like obviously we don't want to be getting sick or injured. We, don't, we know that, but like it's, it's of less of importance to our GA, to our GA season, basically for that kind yeah. of stuff to happen. Um, and even right now, um, like we, we, we will cover stuff we can do right now, but right now there is no real GA season at the moment. It's a perfect time to do that kind of stuff. You know, there's no real pressure on players to be doing um, yep. set training or nothing. There's no sign of games right now is a good chance. Like take it as a preseason. Um, now I know it's easier said than done and I'm not going to pressure anyone within these kind of lockdown situations because everyone's say mental health status and how they're coping with it is um, different and I I, I don't like some of the mantras I'm seeing where it's like if you don't come out of lockdown having learned a new skill and being a better version of yourself 
you're somehow a failure, which is, it's okay to not be arsed to do anything some days in this lockdown. It's, it's the nature. It's, we're all engaged in activities that go against our human nature as such, and we're, we're social beings. So if you're finding it difficult to get motivated to do stuff, that's completely understandable. It's probably going to help your feelings overall and your mental health if you can get yourself into some habit of exercise and start to feel better about yourself, start to feel better in yourself. But um, yeah, 100%, I think if there was a time that you could do it, this time is um, a perfect condition for it. Because even if GA does return in 2020, we're going to get a three, four week lead in that you can, you know, switch things up and get yourself um, back ready to um, be hit the ground running in terms of your sport. So you're like, oh, I don't want to go into calorie deficit now in case sport comes back. But you have three, four weeks, you're going to be able to recover from any of those drastic changes by the time the matches actually come back. Yeah. Perfect, perfect, yeah, 100%. And just to go back to the body fat, um, a big thing that people will, like, a lot of GA players, like you said, they'll want to be, like, faster or they'll want to be stronger. They're kind of the two big things. And we'll use the example of five kilos. Over the case of, whatever, three months of the preseason, um, Tom loses five kilos. Like, his power-to-weight ratio, even if he doesn't get, like, doesn't increase his, his lifts or his 50-meter sprint time, whatever it is, just by pulling off that weight, he's as a byproduct, he's going to improve the two most kind of common areas. Would you agree, yeah. David? Yeah, his, his relative strength goes up just by the fact that he's, he's a lighter body mass. So if he's at 1.5, say, times body weight with a back squat, and then he stays just as strong, he can lift the same numbers but loses a few kilos, then his, his um, strength goes up to 1.6, 1.7, whatever it may be. Which And we know that when we look at, say, sprint performance, that there's a strong correlation between your relative strength and speed performance up and to a point. Um, so that's certainly something that um, guys could work on and, and would improve um, in terms of, I'm trying to think now, no, there was something else I was going to say, but yeah, I 100% agree that, as I said, people, it takes a long time to increase your 1RM squat, say, well, it, uh, a relatively it takes a longer time to increase it from say 1.5 to 1.7 by just getting stronger than it would to take off a few kilos. If you're carrying those extra kilos um, to increase that relative strength. And the example I show on it, sometimes it's something I've seen used say in the last day of in season is throw a five kilo vest on someone, put a five kilos in the backpack and, you know, do your normal training session, see how much put on your heart rate monitor, see how much it raises your heart rate compared to when you don't have it. That's essentially what your body fat's doing. Imagine now if you could take off when a further five kilos uh, essentially of weight in a backpack, but just from your body fat, you're going to see the same thing. You're not going to need as high a heart rate to move the body mass around as efficiently and everything like this. So everything just becomes a lower, what would you say, perceived intensity for the same objective intensity on the outside. Yeah, essentially just making your, you're, you're making your life a whole pile easier. Mm, 100%. You're still going to have to do X amount of running in a game. You're still going to have to do X amount of training sessions. If you do that at a lower body weight, the cumulative effect is going to be huge. Just from, as you said, your joints and just in general, your sort of health is going to be so much more improved. Um, that's, that's the other factors. Like we tend to always think just in pure performance. If you're carrying excess body fat, we know that we used to think that excess body fat just kind of sat there and didn't really do much. But now we know that it does produce hormones it does have um effects like that we know that excess body fat around the internal organs can be damaging to our health and our health markers if you're carrying excess body fat 
to the point that it's detrimental to your health, forget about the sport. You want to tidy that up just for your own, your own health and quality of life. Yeah. Health before performance. And uh, one last thing just around the body fat, I think it's really important. And it's something I always come back on when it comes to nutrition is um, just the confidence that comes with it comes to a player when he's like at a, like an optimal body composition. So like you said, around that 13 or 14% um, body fat level, like, there has to be confidence associated with knowing that you made all the right choices in the lead up to this, um, as opposed to the same person being maybe 20% body fat. And, you know, maybe there's like a exactly. mental side to it. I, I won't go into much of the psychology because it's, it's not my area, but there's, there's two factors there. First of all, everybody likes to look like they're in shape. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. We all lift and we're like, oh, you know, we lift for these internal intrinsic motivating factors that, you know, we want to be our best version of ourselves and everything like that. Mm-hmm. But there's a reason we still all wear tight t-shirts is because yeah. <laughs> we lift, we put a lot of time into lifting and we want to fucking look like we lift and we want <laughs> other people to know that we look like we lift. Um, and I think Mike Isertel has a great joke about that is when he's on a bulk, he's like, that's how he knows he's going um, too heavy is when other fat guys start including him in the fat guy jokes. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> oh, he's like, this fat guy talking and telling jokes. Like, ah, you know what I'm talking about. And your man's like, and Mike's like, okay, yeah, this bulk has gone too far. I need to lean down again and show that this is actual. <laughs> and then the other thing is I, I play either in the halfback or fullback line predominantly. At the start, if I have a guy walking over me that, you know, is in good shape, looks lean, I'm like, okay, bollocks. If I have this kind of bit overweight lad, you know, even if he's a big lump of lad, I'm like, okay, I can go toe-to-toe with him on strength and probably win out on this one. It's when those lean guys come over, it's like, oh, he's going to be a speedy little twisty fucker. And you know what I mean? It's like, I won't be able just to muscle him off the ball. I'll have to really keep with him. And that, as a, a defender, that's, that's what you hate to see. You prefer to see the big, bulky, heavy lads coming. Like, like I'm, what, I currently stand at 90 kilos. So I prefer to see that kind of big, bulky lad come over than a little, short, speedy lad that I know is just going to burn me for the whole match. Yeah. And even like you just look at look at any sport, like look at anyone. Well, ninety percent of the top guys in in any sport, they've got a direct the optimal body composition for that sport. Like, and it's it's worth pointing out that rugby has a different positions in rugby are different to to GA and and you know like sumo wrestling has a different optimal body composition. It's all different. Even look at rugby, like even the props. Yeah, they're yes a higher body fat percentage, but very few of them now actually are carrying that much excess body fat. Yeah, most of them are fairly lean. Yeah, hundred percent. So yeah, body fat. Body fat is definitely the the lowest hanging fruit. Okay, and it doesn't even come into the into the. the there's nothing physical, I suppose. Like there's no training for it as such. It's just getting the nutrition right. Okay. And if anyone wants to pop back, I've done a nutrition um for fat loss with Garben. It's a really good kind of resource to go back to. Uh, or I done a sports a live sports nutrition one. David, you have a real good podcast with Mark Tremaine too. I listen to it. Um. Yeah, so Mark, yeah, he's our head of nutrition here at Synapse Performance, but he's also um, the performance nutritionist for the Dublin senior hurlers, Dublin under-20s hurlers, and Dublin under-20 footballers. So he's well-versed in applied GA nutrition. So, yeah, we covered nutrition for GA athlete in one of our episodes. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. So that's a really good – so there are kind of three resources you can go to, okay? So moving on from body fat, David, where, where do you think next we should be looking at? I thinking about this, so I actually think what something that is 
very undervalued or very underutilized in GAA is most people want to get faster. Most people want to prevent injuries and everything like that. Very few people actually sprint. When I, the amount of teams have gone in either just consulting as a kind of auditing their SC program or actually working with them hands-on, I ask how many times do the guys sprint a week? And usually, oh, do you know, we, we always finish the end of each session with a sprinting block. I'm like, yeah, but those guys are tired. As like, and that's, it's not sprinting. You're just doing 30 seconds on these, essentially what are mass runs. You know, you, the guys are running at 85%, 90% um, max velocity, where I'm like, how many times a week do you do a warm-up and then you go for 50 meters as hard as you possibly can trying to actually focus on sprinting and not saying, okay, I need to save myself or I've only 10 seconds to recover down here. I mean, 50 meters as hard as you possibly can all out sprinting, trying to get as uh, move every bit of your body as fast as you can recover for a couple of minutes, do it again. And you don't need to do much, but I think a lot of people forget that when you look at transference to sprinting, what activities lead to the biggest increases in sprinting performance? The number one is sprinting. People tend to forget that sprinting has the most crossover to sprinting. Like, and it, the way I try to explain to people, I'm like, okay, you're given one month to increase your back squat 1RM as much as you can. If you increase it by this X amount, I'll give you a million euro. I can guarantee that most people are probably going to spend the majority of that month predominantly back squatting and doing nothing else. Why? Because like, well, I need to get stronger at back squatting. Therefore, that's what I'm going to train. Well, if you want to get better at sprinting, stop back squatting and fucking train a bit. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It's, it's funny. And like the, the strength stuff and everything like that's important, the mechanics, but just actually going out. Because what I find is, and even if you look at um, the injury rates in GA, there's, there's always been this dogma, as, and it was more so in the early 2000s we saw it, where guys were getting big and bulky and it was, you know, the guys had to be big to be able to take a hit where when we look at the actual epidemiological data on injuries in um, GA, we see a few interesting things pop out. So first of all, we know you're four times more likely to get injured in a match than in training. So the matches are the kind of the danger point. Now from that, we know 85% of injuries are non-contact injuries. So it's not from guys hitting into you. So the majority of injuries happen when you're just running. There's no one around you. It's something you do without an external um, force. Well, there is external forces, but what I say, without uh, another player acting upon you or um, hitting, hitting you. When we dig into those injuries, so we know predominantly they're non-contact. We know the majority of those um, occur in the third and fourth quarter of the game. So fatigue seems to be somewhat associated to these injuries that when people are fatigued later in the game, they're more prone to injuries, which makes sense. And we know that the majority of the injuries comprise of hamstring strains and ankle sprains. We know that. So if we look at, you see so many guys spend hours doing <coughs> rotator cuff stuff, you know, to protect my shoulder because they've heard of one guy dislocating their shoulder a couple of years back where, and most of those dislocating shoulders is, is, not, is unpreventable. It's a guy hitting into you awkwardly. It's you're going up for a schlitter and you get hooked or something and pulls the arm back, um, something like that that's going to pop the shoulder. But most injuries, <coughs> pardon me, most of the injuries are hamstring tears and ankle sprains that happen when the player is fatigued in the later stages of the match. Now, what tends to happen then as well is 
these are kind of the crucial times in a match when, you know, players are, what would you say, more hyped up and more willing to put everything on the line. So generally where we see a lot of these injuries happen is um, a ball gets turned over and it's a man chasing back, you know, going full pelt. His motivation is high because he needs to catch his man to prevent them losing the game. And now all of a sudden he is putting max intent and max effort, him or her, into their sprinting for the first time what could be in weeks or months. These guys haven't, but now because they have an, a, <coughs> something to chase in front of them, <coughs> pardon me, because they have something, <coughs> I'm just going to grab water real quick, sorry. I'll take it from there for a second. Um, so yeah, as David was saying, having that exposure to maximal sprints is massively important. This idea of going like 60%, 70% um, for long durations it doesn't carry over to the real match-winning plays, okay? So, like David was talking about, the match-winning or losing in his scenario, um, that requires 100% effort. And if you haven't been exposed to that in, in a month or two months or three months, it's, it's just a totally new stimulus. Um, exactly. You're, you have the musculature, so you have your ankles, and you've, the muscles are wanting, but you've all the ligaments and tendons and everything in there. So, all of a sudden... You haven't sprinted properly in a while and you're exposing all these ligaments and tendons and muscles to forces and velocities that they haven't been exposed to in quite a while. And we know if we have, you know, the said principle, specific adaptations impose demands. If we're not getting exposed and Lauren Landau was a great phrase. He's like, we give a little bit of venom or no, we give, yeah, that's it. Oh, we give a little bit of poison to oh, essentially, that's what we want a microdose poison. You know, it's the same as say what a, a vaccine does. A vaccine. I did an awful job of paraphrasing there, but <laughs> essentially this is, this is what we want to do. It does not be great, just <clears throat> a couple of high velocity, maximum intent sprints a week. Your hip flexors, your glutes, your knees, your hamstrings, your ankles, everything is then exposed and used to this stimulus. And what I do is do a couple of them before the session when you're actually fresh and you can get to this maximal velocity. And then I also throw in a couple of them at the end of the session because we know that most of the injuries happen in a fatigue state. So I want the athletes to get exposed to maximal velocity, maximal intent sprinting while in a fatigue state. Yes, how fast they're actually running might be less, it's going to be slower than at the start of the session, but we're exposing the muscles and ligaments and everything to do this in a fatigue state with the hope is if we microdose these all along, then when we are exposed to them in a game, we won't break down in the face of those demands. And also, I also include in the um, cool downs, cutting movements. So cutting left and right, because most of the time we see someone goes over on the ankle when they try to change direction real quick in a fatigue state at the end of the match. So I think that's the other low-hanging fruit is if you want to get faster and you just overall want to reduce your risk of injury, you would want to be including some maximal sprint work um, each week in your training. And that's something during lockdown, I think, is crucial. A lot of people are neglecting. Uh, like, if you've never done this before, ease into it. You know, you just do a 10 or 20 meter max, um, one or two reps, and then build up the, both the distance and volume over time gradually. But if that's something you're not currently doing during lockdown, and then you have a quick turnaround and you have to go play a match, or even you go back to st um, standard training, and you're expected to do a full-scale sprint in training, you won't surprise me if um, hamstring tears uh, turn up. 
we had the Bundesliga return the other day and we had eight injuries of uh, muscular nature in six matches from high-level soccer players who should have been doing their training. But this is this reality. Athletes, as with everyone, is kind of probably slacking off a little bit when they're at home in the lockdown scenario. But that's the other big thing. If you can expose yourself to maximal velocity running and microdosing in training, I've seen huge benefits in both performance and injury prevention. And I should say injury risk factor modification because we can't prevent injuries. Sometimes they happen, but we can modify the risk factors we know is associated with injury. And it's important that when we, when we think of maximal sprinting, that we have to be fully recovered. I think this is something I see when it comes to GA and this could apply to coaches as, as well as any, GA, any players doing a bit of training on their own, that like shuttling in and out from the 21 for 30 seconds is not maximal sprint training. No. Okay? Sprinting once to the 21 and taking maybe two minutes of a recovery now that maybe that is, um, but it's important that we are like fully recovered. How like the fitter you are, the, the faster you recover. So it's kind of I think the rest periods are individual. As long as you're fully recovered hitting them, I don't. I'm not too fussed on how much time. It used to be a, like a set like per meter, like a certain amount of seconds. Did you ever come across that, David? Yeah, I think the the recommended ratio is it's either six to one or ten to one. I have in my head as the recommended. Generally, what um. There's a, there's a couple of ways you can do it. If you wear a heart rate monitor, you can wait till your heart rate comes down below a certain level. Um, if Now, if I was doing it personally with high-end athletes, you generally would have your gait set up and you just ensure they're hitting pretty much the same velocity each time. If all of a sudden the speed is dropping significantly, we'd say, okay, um, let's rest a bit longer for the next one or whatever it may be. But as you said, a lot of this can be doing common sense. It's just... When you feel recovered and when you feel you're hitting max intensity again, um, go for it. A lot of the guys that I work with, they do this, they show up 10, 15 minutes early to training and do it themselves before training because you're going to get very few clubs do it because of the nature of it, that it's three seconds sprinting, two minutes rest. No GA coach really enjoys that, has the player stand around for that long. There always seems to be, you have to be moving constantly for the hour or whatever it may be. So a few sprints by yourself before training, a few after training. Most people are training twice a week. That's more than enough um, exposure there to get all the benefits from it. And to add in like a more like sport specific or carryover, just put a slitter just five yards after your sprint. If it's supposed to be to the 21, shut out five yards, do your sprint, slowly decelerate, pick the ball. Okay. Yeah. And, or Gaelic football if it's, it's football. Um, doesn't, like, that might be enough to get a carryover to your sport. Um, like maximal sprinting is one aspect of, of performance and conditioning is a very different one. So just make sure we're not, or endurance, wherever you want to phrase it, just make sure we're not crossing them over, that they're two very separate parts of it. And I think that's, I think that's really important. And I think, like you said, um, it's, 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 it's not cool to be, as a coach, to be three seconds of sprints and two minutes of a breeder. Or so the old... Or, older kind of generation would look on that and go, whereas a, a more modern coach would see that and go, look, that's, that's, that's part of performance. That's, that's, no, yeah, that's part of it. It's important that I, I view the, the sprint like that more as a skill. If, if you kind of look at that through the lens, it's not a conditioning drill, it's a skill drill. And then you compare that to other skill drills. If you were wanting guys to work on kicking with their weak foot or guys practicing free kicking, you're not going to work them till they can't breathe, they're out of breath, can barely stand up and say, okay, keep kicking. You know what I mean? You don't do that. You allow them to practice in a much more relaxed, much more focused way. And you just have to view skill in the same lens. 
Okay, and we um we'll just take it that the the said athlete is getting exposures to maximal sprints every week. Okay, what role does the the technical aspect of the run or the sprint play? Um, and what other aspects are do affect that maximal sprint? Yeah, so there's um a few in terms of your technique. So I can be somewhat of a nihilist when it comes to uh, sprint technique, but there is there's no perfect way to sprint but there is general characteristics we we want to see you know i mean we don't want really bad posture but if it's a case of you know is if if the elbow is at 85 degrees and people are like no the optimal is 87 degrees in the elbow and say yeah i don't buy into that shit because first of all our guys are not running on tracks they're not sprinters they have to a sprinter doesn't even have to know where they're going they're just running a straight line our guys have to have a lot of cognitive stuff going on at the same time and they're, you're never running a dead straight line. You're usually varying the pace up and down. You're turning, twisting, doing all these uh, type of things. But technique definitely has, and probably the biggest one I see with most guys and girls is to just carry too much tension. They're, this idea of they're trying to sprint, but almost forcing it where they're pumping the arms, but they're pumping them where they're real tense and tight. And where what I say to them is like, look, I want you to pump the arms forward and back as if you're sprinting on the spot. But I also want you to squeeze your bicep and triceps and everything as hard as you can while you're doing it. And what they find is you can't pump your arms that quick when you're squeezing everything. So I'm like, when you're contracting all those muscles as hard as you can with all that tension, it doesn't allow them for high velocity movements. So we know that kind of, that our um our bodies the locomotion that you know the work in opposites to each other that the left arm goes when the right leg goes and oftentimes i'll draw the attention away from what the feet are doing i'm like just pump your arms faster it's like if you're able to pump those arms faster get more relaxed in your upper body pump those arms faster the legs tend to catch up a lot of um, guys and girls will catch up with the legs so that's the main thing people carry too much tension so yes we want to produce a lot of force everything like this required but to do that very quickly, uh, that tension is just not, um, what would you say, beneficial to that. So we need just that to be overall relaxed. So fast but relaxed. Loose is, the, is what I like to say there. Um, in terms of the body mechanics, lower body. So a lot of people try to look at track sprinters, 100-meter sprinters, and bring their mechanics over to field-based sports. doesn't exactly transfer because... One of the biggest differences we see is sprinters on a track have the spikes, they run completely on the balls of their feet, midfoot or heel never really touches. Now, we all play on grass um, pitches predominantly. What happens is when you push into a track, the track is fairly stiff. Anyone's ever walk on them, it's essentially just concrete with a little bit of rubber on top of it. Now, when you press into that, it pushes straight back for you. There's no give in a track. You do that on a pitch, your foot goes down with it. It compresses the grass and earth beneath you, especially when you're twisting and turning. So what we tend to see is, yes, we strike with the ball of the foot, but we tend to see what we call a lot more dorsiflexion in the ankle. So the, the toe comes up, the shin travels forward, and we see actually when they're pushing off, we have to push from a flat foot position. So oftentimes, full range of motion calf raise, something like that, good ankle mobility um, can really enhance that. Because if you... That's what's required to do it effectively. But if you don't have the ankle mobility that you can't get into that position, that's going to inhibit the way you can move properly in the, in the sprinting. Um, and my mobility for the ankle consists just of um, 
full range of motion calf raises. So really getting down deep, really pushing up onto the tippy toes. And outside of that, some foot strengthening stuff can work. A lot of people don't actually strengthen their feet ever. So even just walking around the house a good bit with no um, socks or shoes on can help. Just get a bit of that proprioceptive feedback in there. And again, that's, it's an area of research that's starting to emerge, but something I'd um, like to see come on more than that. Other than that, generally, um, we see people just might be able to get the knee high enough, the knee punch might be high enough to drag the knees um, too much. So if that's the case, and that's something you just have to look objectively as a coach and see whether that's worth um, investigating or worth cueing a bit better. But if I was saying low-hanging fruit, it's just tension. People don't relax enough on the sprint. And you get that through, as I said, practice in the sprint. You, you learn this by getting exposed to it a few times. That's, that's brilliant, David. Um, I never really thought about that tension in the upper body one, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, remember a coach, actually Adrian O'Brien, a good friend of mine, he um, gave me a cue before when it came to sprinting. He says, imagine you're holding two Pringles in the, between your index and your thumb. So you're like, oh. you're, you're that light with your hands. It's yeah. always, something, always something I remembered, and it makes a lot of sense. If you're real rigid and tight, you're not going to be able to, to move. And that's for GA players in general. You go from one second picking the ball off the floor to next the ball being up in the air you have to be quite not loose but like supple to a degree and you don't yeah. want to be rigid and tight and it's not really athletic I suppose and certainly when it comes to maximal sprinting it's going to be to your detriment yeah I think that people forget that that as you said you might need to take a tackle tighten but then instantly loose again and go and I that that's the difference and you you see these guys that are like that um guys and girls that you know, they're coming up and say they're going to sidestep, they're real tight, and then they're loose and relaxed and they're gone a different direction. And if anyone wants a great example of what this looks like at a high level, look at any Olympic weightlifters. So the clean and jerk is a great example where it's a lot of tension, a lot of stiffness, a lot of stiffness. They're pulling, pulling, then their hips hit to go into that triple extension, and then it's relaxed because they have to get under the bar as quickly as possible. It's not really about pulling the bar as high as you can, which it is, but it's about how quickly can you get under it so you'll see these guys going from maximal tension because they're pulling such a heavy load and then in an instant relax and shoot themselves under the bar so it's that i think that is the tell of great athletes that they're able to go from that maximal tension force reduction to relax very quickly it's the same as boxers fighters you need to be able to do that maximal um, tension the second you hit the impact you land that strike but then you're relaxed again because you're ducking and diving and you're gone um, I think that they, that that's a skill that comes in time, but is uh, valuable across so many sports. And those and those responses happen so fast that it's like you don't get you don't get a chance to think of a cue. No. Um, now, like, don't, don't get me wrong. I think you can practice the pattern of it, and it's definitely going to carry over to some degree. But like, if a ball breaks, you don't have a chance. You don't you don't have time to say, all right, let's um get a bit of forward lean here, get the knee drive, the opposite arm going, all that stuff. It happens too quick for a response like in like a snatch like you know like if you were going for a personal best snatch there's there isn't too many cues you can think of um, no you don't get to the the high pole and like okay now i need to relax it's as you <laughs> said it's it's all within an instant and a lot of this stuff it doesn't even need to be directly coached i i tend to be very much um a scenario based coach in some aspects if i'm trying to teach some of that stuff is just create a small sided game or a scenario than and just watch them and let them try to figure it out for themselves because you put them on in a situation and they keep getting beaten. That's where I think um, we need to just, instead of jumping in and telling them exactly what to do, it's like ask more open-ended questions like, 
why do you think that's happening or why at what point do you feel that um you're losing the battle this one-on-one battle with that person and they'd be like and usually you get the responses and if you are a good communicator you can dig into it they can identify themselves to be like yeah maybe i'm just not twisting quick enough i'm just not getting out of there that quick enough i'm like okay well next time just focus on that it's like just stay relaxed compose and just try shoot out there and that's where you use these cues like holding the pringles or whatever cue you want to use at that but i wouldn't be jumping in straight away i'd allow the athlete to kind of try identify that themselves because if the athlete identifies the problem rather than you telling them what the problem is therefore they're already problem solving they're learning themselves they're self-coaching and you're going to get more buy-in because you haven't come in and told them look you're shit at this you need to work on this they've said i'm shit at this i'd like to get better at that and they're asking for your help how do you think i could get better at that so instantly we've got better buy-in we're probably going to get better outcomes then with our athletes from that yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah and you're giving them more autonomy and and we won't get into psychology and motivation but all that good stuff yeah more autonomy for a player is really really important and that's that's a part of my coaching philosophy as well i think it's i think it should be part of everyone so to give the players as much responsibility as we can but um just to touch on one thing david right and it's something i've i've kind of noticed myself right it's the idea of the knee drive right um, and if we were to get into kind of a technical cue, it's one that I like. Um, do you do? You, and as I've noticed with GA players in general, is this, this when this when they see ladders coming out, they automatically think now it's time to get faster. Okay. And if you think of what happens in a ladder, where we'll just say a guy is going, I'm too sure what they call it, where he goes from left to right throughout that. I don't I don't really use them, so I'm not too sure what the name is. Uh, I think that's called wasting your time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm not a i use them in a bit of warm-ups in the gym for a bit of banter but i don't really use them on the pitch but uh yeah that's what i would push let's go back to the mechanics right the mechanics that a person's going to learn there is like staying on the kind of the, their tippy toes and not lifting their knees overly high because it'll take too long to get through it mm. all right so then we want a maximal sprint in an optimal world we would want a certain amount of knee drive much higher than what you would get in that ladder mm. okay and i think and i'm open to being wrong here we could be getting a small bit of negative carryover from the ladder over to maximal sprinting potentially i i think so in terms of the ladders i i'm not a great fan of ladders um if someone now i see potentially a use for them to teach a closed skill or like that a mechanical aspect of it but i just fail to see any use where any drill you do the ladder so you take a team of 30 individuals with different heights, weights, segment lengths, abilities, and you said to all of them, like, okay, you need to do all this skill, but you, you're five foot four and you're six foot three, you have to keep it when the exact same spaces. And, you know, it's, it's putting something that's highly standardized to a group of people who are not standardized or highly variant. And that doesn't make sense to me that everyone has to conform into boxing. Same with some of the hurdles. You know, you see the five foot lads mm-hmm. and they're, you know what I mean? They're nearly killing themselves trying to get the leg over. And then you have the big tall midfielder just barely lifting the foot to get over the hurdles or whatever it may be. And there's no drill I've seen that you do in a ladder that couldn't be done just between two poles. It's like mimic the same patterns or put a bit of rope down along the ground or something like that that you um, couldn't do like that. So I, I see very little use of ladders, but if you're going to use ladders, you better have a rationale. And if it's just for fast feet, fast feet, that, that's, that's, that's bullshit, essentially. Like if, if you're telling me it's like, we're using it as a form of plyometric training where we want to train 
the ankle complex to move really fast with the legs or something like that or minimize ground contact maybe okay you can come up with rationale now not one ga coach has ever given me that rationale i will admit it's usually like ah it's agility i was like you don't understand what agility is um any of those drills yeah i i see they don't really transfer very well to um sprinting like even this uh, this idea is oh guys i want to see you go to that pole and side shuffle side shuffle away it's like if i'm going if an athlete is going from here to there five meters I've never once seen a fucking athlete side shuffle. I've seen them turn and sprint there, but I've never seen them side shuffle over to it. Nor have I ever seen a GA player side shuffle a man in defense in terms of just stand on the 45 and side shuffle. No, they're doing curved running. It, none of it are, what generally you see is they're running, but just twisting the upper body to tackle, but the legs are still going in that forward position. We rarely see a side shuffle, if um, ever. So I, I can't understand that. And even this idea of tippy-tappy, the feet really close. When you look, I think too many people fail to reverse engineer sports where watch the top guys. I prefer to, who are the best GA players? Who are the best ones that move well? What makes them the best? I was like, what are they doing that makes them so good? And reverse engineer from there. So you have a big sample size, all your players. Go watch some of the best guys and, okay, try to identify what are the characteristics that make them good? Okay, they move this way. Do many other players move that way? Let's look at other county players in the same position. Okay, all the top guys seem to have this common trait. Maybe that's something that we should try to implement uh, and encourage rather than these technical aspects that we've drawn from other sports which don't apply. And it's like the NFL combine. It's the most useless test for what the actual sport needs. But that idea has been popularized globally, these um, tests. And what that comes back to the ladders is you have these fast, sharp feet movement in close proximity. But you watch someone when they actually cut or there is a tackle coming in. The feet don't come within, you know, four or five inches of each other. It's usually a much wider stance. Do you know, the feet are much in a much wider position when they have to rapidly turn and twist. So I just can't get my head around any of the logic of those kind of sharp, fast drills. Um, bar they just look like their speed drills, but they don't actually have much substance. If you're looking to do mechanics, lean up against a fence or a wall, get into that kind of body angle position, and then teach the mechanics, teach your fast feet there. But that's when you can get some proper leg drive and get some knee elevation, whatever else you're looking for in your um, coaching. And the most important thing with all this strength conditioning is, is transference. It's what we do it has to transfer over to the pitch. And like you said, um, ladders, there's a false perception there that what we're doing is going to carry over to a pitch. Like I said, I often use them in the gym. Um, the lads come in, it's a good way to round up the lads and get them going. There's a bit of banter around them. But like the transference from the pitch over from the ladders to the pitch, I know is very minimal. But I do know that a, like a 10-meter sprint or a 5-meter sprint to a ball is much more um, transferable. And just something, when it comes to cues and stuff, it just was brought up, like... And learning from the best, right? Like the best GA players, from what I can see, Gaelic football or hurling, they all seem to do something that I, in common, is when they get the ball, they all seem to take those, the first three or four steps, they usually use all three or four, and they, they usually cover a lot of ground in those three or four. So something, something simple that I will do when we're coaching teams is just focus on covering as much distance in four steps as you possibly can. And 
more often than not, a pass is given and a ball hits the hurler. They take a, they take a solo or something happens after those four steps. But if you can get those four steps or five if you're playing for Davy Fitz, <laughs> after that it starts to break down a small bit. Do you know what I mean? So, and realistically, three, four steps, you're probably a good GA player. could probably cover 10, 10-ish meters in a roundabout there. Yeah, roughly around about that. So if you can just get him to cover as much ground in four steps as, as possible, I think that's as good as... When it comes to queuing, there isn't much more on top of that we need. As, as you said, to be loose on that upper body is really yeah. important as well. Yeah, and I think that's where the other element comes in is just the strength element. So yeah. what's, what's interesting about sprinting is if you look at it kind of from an overview, you can break it down into, now you can break it down into as many components really as you want, but there's two main phases that I view it through. And, and it's, it's reflective of some of the strategies you may use to improve it. So you have the acceleration phase, that first five, 10 meters where you're yep. going from a static start and it's what we call, you need to overcome inertia. So you need to, that's where you need to generate a lot of time um, in the ground. You've a larger impulse is what we call it, but essentially your feet are in contact with the ground much longer because you're trying to put more force into ground to get you from a standard start. So that's your first, say, 5, 10 meters. And then once you get beyond that, you're getting into your top end, your max velocity, whatever you may. That's where you're getting as fast as you can possibly move and you're trying to maintain that for as long as you can. And that's when we see ground contact time and stuff like this. Your feet aren't touching the ground for as long as hitting and bouncing and um, going on. And that's much more where ankle um, and tendon stiffness and stuff comes in at that point then as well. But that first to 5, 10 meters essentially you're overcoming your own body weight and inertia as, as much as you can. That's very much dependent upon your strength. Your strength will have huge transfer. So when people talk about sprinting and uh, your max one or M being correlated with strength, it's very much in that five to 10 meters because it's where you have to generate the high force. When you get into the top end stuff, that's where it's about your body needs to learn to move as fast as possible. So common thing, people like, should I use resistance training? Should I use sleds, whatever? Yes and no, they have their place. So you have to ask yourself, look at your sprint and say, where do I struggle? Is it that I'm very slow off the mark that first to five, 10 meters, I just struggle to get up the pace. But once I'm up at top end pace, I'm actually fairly quick. Or is it a case that, um, you know, I accelerate quick, but I'm just not that fast. Even when I'm at my max, guys are still a good bit faster than me. So if you are looking at those two, if I wanted to get you quicker maximally, raise your top end maximal velocity speed, it doesn't make sense to slow the body down in that. It doesn't make sense to make uh, put resistance on the body because you're literally trying to teach your muscles and joints and everything to move faster and get to a higher, um, a new higher speed. So that's where something like downhill running, which is a very small gradient, or at, you'd see some people use the parachutes where the parachute's in front of them, pulling them or a partner pulling them. That's overspeed training, where we're literally teaching the body to become the nervous system to move faster. Now, most guys don't need that because most guys don't ever get to that max velocity in a match. They're never challenged. That's not their limiting factor. Most guys need that five to 10 meters, and that's where your strength comes down. So that's where getting stronger in your back squat, getting stronger in your um, trap bar deadlift, and potentially using resisted sprinting sleds these type of things can have great transference to that. Now, one of the problems we see is guys go overboard on that and forget what I said has the greatest transfer to sprinting. 
sprinting itself. If you only do those things, only try to get stronger, but never actually um, train um, the sprint itself, you're not going to learn because sprinting is a skill. I view it more as a skill. So you've built up the physical qualities. You've had the strength. So you have this new force capacity, but you haven't been practicing the skills. So you haven't learned how to express that skill. Because I often talk to the difference between building a, um, a characteristic of fitness and learning how to express it. If we turn it around to a powerlifting context, we don't, when we train for powerlifting meet, we don't do one or M's all the time. We don't go as hard as we possibly can. We do the majority of our work probably leading up to meeting the 70 to 85% one or M range. And then what do you do a couple of weeks out? You start peaking. You start um, using these 95%. You start to learn how to use these heavy loads. And the reason for that is <clears throat> you didn't build your new one or M from that. You built your one or M. So you actually increased your strength, you could argue, by doing all that work at 70 to 85%, that volume work you use the peaking to learn how to express this new strength you've built. And that's what you're doing. You do the weights in the gym, you do your resisted sprint and whatever it may be to increase your strength. But then you always have to go back and learn how to express this new increases of strength. And you do that by practicing the actual skill of sprinting and then practicing it in a game scenario. And now you've taken stuff that you've developed off the pitch in the gym and learned how to express it on the pitch. A lot of time, that's where I see the problem. A lot of guys' strength work, yes, it's often bad, but even they're like, oh, well, I got really strong in the squat and whatever, but it didn't really help. I was like, yeah, you built up the new capacity, but you never learned how to express it on the pitch. And that, that's, I think, um, a pitfall a lot of people fall into is they don't actually remember that you have to teach the body to use these new um, capacities to have in a game-specific scenario. That's really good. That, that, that kind of summarizes the whole thing, to be honest with you. Express, yeah. express what you've learned, um, yeah. basically. Yeah. So, and, and even just to, to track back to the very first aspect, which was body fat, and it comes back to this again. So if we're talking about strength and speed, the lower the body fat, the easier the job is. Okay. Yeah. So that's the first step. And then we can look at bringing in the, the exposures and then you can make those exposures more beneficial by your strength work mm -hmm. or your technical speed work. It's, it, it's it's kind of really logical format to it yeah and as as we said a second ago we want all this to, all this stuff to transfer yeah but that's like, that's really SNC good snc doesn't have to be complicated people really overcomplicate snc in general and especially when it comes to ga um ga and i i'm lucky enough that i work with um brian cullen who would be head snc head of performance dublin ga as much as it grieves me to say currently the best GA team in the country but I can tell you now what the guys do in Dublin is it's not complex it's it, it's shockingly simple if you if most people saw it it would be um shockingly simple and I remember he gave a presentation on it a couple of months ago and some coaches I think were skeptical that that was actually what Dublin do they're like no that can't be what to do it's like yeah the guys are all in great condition but it doesn't take that much and you don't need that much complexity to do that. You just need structure in place and consistency. And that's as simple as that. It's important that as strength conditioning coaches, we don't get um, carried away with ourselves. We are just a, you know, a very small part of the jigsaw. This, mm. this skill component is the vast majority of it. We are just a boy, you know. Like I, I do 
a bit when I kind of consulting with different coaches and teams and stuff. Um, I have done an odd bit, you know, where a club can't afford a full-time S&C coach, but I come in, audit what to do, give them a sample plan and give them some recommendations and stuff. Most teams do too much S&C in terms of, uh, oh, the guys, they're, they're in the gym four nights a week or, you know, they're doing two nights a week in the gym here and two at home. And I'm like, yeah, but your guys can't tackle I was like, your full forwards only have one foot. <laughs> I was like, they'd be better off reducing that to two sessions a week and learn how to tackle, and you'll have a much more successful season than getting these guys strong, but they can't kick a ball. You know, it's, 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 it's as simple as that. It does come down. As a GA player, if, you're, if your focus is just GA performance, um, you, you're not worried about physique or aesthetics, um, I'd argue there's not much merit going above two to three sessions a week in the gym beyond that like two to three quality sessions a week in the gym is more than enough to get transference um, and get all the benefits you can from the strength work for a GA player you'd be better off if you do four or five you'd be better off cutting it down to three and spending those other two um, sessions a week where you would have been in the gym working on the skills of your game because that's essentially what's going to um, determine like if you at a high level you get to inter-county level they're all fit you know what I mean? You don't get to an inter-county level and be fit. So if you're in the top eight to 10 county teams in the country, the fitness is pretty much the same between them all, um, give or take. When you are physically as fit as your opponent, it comes down to skill level. That's what's going to divide the two years. Who can think better? Who can react better? Who can execute the skills under pressure? And I think a lot of people forget that. Um, the conditioning stuff and Something people forget then as well, and this is going back to why, say, the off-season and pre-season is important. You can do an awful lot of work in the off-season and pre-season, gym work and whatever. Once you develop the traits and once you get strong, once you build muscle, it's not that hard to keep it. You don't have to do much to stay strong. You don't have to do that much. You will maintain all your muscle mass off two sessions a week, uh, you know what I mean, in-season. So you're better off then transferring towards working more on the skill aspects at that stage. But um, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Most people probably do too much SNC and too much wrong SNC. Two to three good quality resistance training sessions a week as a GA player should be more than enough. Yeah, I totally agree. Makes lots, lots of sense. And there comes a point where if a guy is in the gym four and five days a week, it's going to actually interfere with his on-pitch sessions, which are what is most important. So that kind of um, principle of interference, I suppose you could call it. So that's that's important as well. We're GA players. The the our gauge for performance is how we perform on the pitch, not uh, what we can buy subcard. Exactly. If if you increase your squat twenty kilos or your bench press twenty kilos, but you don't get any better on the pitch, you just wasted your time. Yeah. What was the point then? If you haven't got faster, you haven't performance hasn't gone up, you've just wasted your time. Okay. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And. Just um, there's just one one last area I want to go through, right? And it's it's this idea of teams wanting to be the fittest team in the county or the fittest team in the league, right? And it's all in good state. It's not like it's coming from a place of badness, okay? But and if there is a big emphasis on like running, okay, and in the training, and even players who think like just going down and running, running the pitch, whatever it may be, it might be laps or it might be shuttles or so on and so forth. They've got this big base of aerobic fitness, we'll say, okay? And yet they still find the last couple of minutes they're dying off in games. And 
to me, and it's something I've heard coaches talk about in other sports before, but this idea that they're not maybe tactically or technically as good as the opposition and just come at the end of the game, they're just trained. Yeah. So they might have actually started off with a better aerobic uh, base or fitness base okay, than the opposition, but they're just so tactically drained from getting pulled left, right and center. They're out of position, they're tracking left, tracking right. Come the 60th minute of the game or 10 minutes to go, they're, they're gassed out basically. Um, yeah, I think that's a, there's a couple of things though. I've dealt with that issue before with players saying that. So obviously you address the 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 kind of the major issues it could be. So you, you audit their nutrition. Look, are you eating right? You know, okay, yeah, your nutrition's not the limiting factor here. You then you'd probably go to their lifestyle factors. You're like, okay, you sleeping? How stress level? Okay, your lifestyle is fine, conducive to good performance. And then obviously you assess your training. You're like, okay, they're trained, they're fit. We have these tests or aerobically fit um, it's fine there's two then areas that I, t- I think get overlooked a bit too much and your what you just stated there is very true the other one is I've been in a scenario several times where guys have been say pre-season you know you're pushing your team hard for 10 12 weeks in a row they've been running two three nights a week they're all the guys and girls are in really good shape first match comes up and they look shit you know they're sloppy they look tired they're off the pace and you have the managers like oh these guys aren't fit what's the solution Tuesday night runs the bollocks out of them um now what is more likely you have people have been training very hard for three months and then they're the poor performance is it they're not fit or they're just bollocks you've just ran them into the ground for the last three months you're training give them a week off give them some time to recover and um that can help. So that's one thing I'd assess. Are you recovering properly? And have you just built up overall fatigue that you're dying off? You can't last a match because you're just that fatigued. Now, secondly, I think what you talked about there is very much a case in a lot of consider in a lot of situations. It's much, and we've all been there. The, our, our psychology influences our physiology. Our mindset influences how we appraise any given situation. So we've, we've all been there where we're not in a good mood, you know, we're a bit down, our mindset's not in a good place. And be it in the gym, in training, we bail out. We're like, fuck this. I'm, I could have done another few reps there, but I'm not arsed. I just can't go through the pain that I normally deal with. Same with the runs. You bail out early, you pull up with, oh, I know my hamstring's a bit niggling me there today. I think I just better leave the few extra runs off. And it's because you're finding everything harder because your mindset's in a, a poorer place. And where we see that in the game, it's always easier to keep going when you're winning in the last 10 minutes than when you're getting hammered. You know, when you're five, six points down in your own head, 10 minutes ago, you're like, maybe you've lost the game in your own head. You've given up already. And you're like, I'm just bollocks. He's like, this forward keeps running me, keeps running me. I just can't keep up this. And then you get conscious of, God, I'm breathing heavy. My legs are tired and you as you said the opposition have just outdone you tactically and technically that maybe they've ran you into the ground maybe that's what they did they've pulled you out of position so much that you're fitter than the guy but you've just covered more ground because you weren't as efficient with your time um so you have that but then also if you're on the winning side if you're that forward and you've been popping over points all day you'll keep going yes you're bollocks you're just as tired as the guy or girl beside you but you're in a much better place you keep giving me the ball i keep popping it over so you have that going on. And then you have the other aspect of the technical is the best players, and it's, it's a gripe I have with GPS data. 
So GPS data, which is becoming very popular even at club level now, um, is a great tool when used properly. The problem is not many people know how to use it properly and can't do the in-depth analysis with the data you get. They just take the surface level data because they don't know how to dig down into it. Because the surface level data is, how much did you cover in a game? And you're like, well, Johnny's covering 10K a game. You're only covering six. And you're like, you know, Johnny's doing a lot more work than you are. Like, yeah, but Johnny's running around in circles and hasn't touched the ball. I've put over 3-2 or whatever it is. You know, it's, it's not... You have to look at it in the context of what did that person do with that distance. So, you know, I kind of look at metrics of we have these stats that um, we know the stats guys are taking of saying significant passes, significant roles, scores, all these things. So significant positive and negative um, statistics of what people do in a game. Every action they take in a game is either positive or negative towards the team. And at the end, you can look, well, my full forward did 20 positive interactions when they played in the game and five negative, whatever it is. You have their total distance. Now you can start to say, well, player X has done nine positive interactions per one kilometer ran or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Whereas if someone did the same amount of positive interactions but ran twice as many kilometers, now they've done half the same impact on the game. So it's not that the player who runs less is a worse player. They're just a more clever and efficient player. They have just as big of impact on the game, but to do it with covering less distance. And that's what any of the great players do. You know, you as a fullback, anyone's ever played fullback, you have the full forward, the poor ones, corner forward, full forward, that the ball is well back in their own half and they're already making the run. They're making the run a solid five seconds too early. Where what do the good guys do? They wait, they wait, they wait. And when the time is right, they move and they've only moving five meters, they might move, but they've timed it perfectly into the right space that they get the ball, they turn and they pop it over. Where the poor guy makes the run too early, runs 20 meters to receive a ball because the pass didn't have the distance, didn't have the legs. Then they have to turn and take their man on and go a further 20, 30 meters back before they're in a shooting position. So they're taking, say, 50, 60 meters of running to do what a good full forward will do in less than 10. And I think they're two aspects. And again, that's getting away from the SNC side more into the kind of coaching and tactical side. But they are important um, things to remember if you're a player that starts to burn out at the end of the game. When you've looked at your training, nutrition, body composition, all that kind of stuff, if all those are in place, have an honest look at yourself and like, am I efficient with how I move? Or do I, do a, do I expend a lot of needless energy in the uh, game? And, and you see it again, as I said, the win and losing um, tackling drills, one-on-one tackling drills, um, which, as a side note, I think is a far better agility drill than any actual agility drill I see GA coaches used, if you know what a tackling drill consists of. But it's always the two players are moving pretty much the same. They're mirroring each other. They're expending the same amount of energy, you could say it's awful lot easier to be the one tackling than the one getting tackled and trying to keep evading. You'll always see that your gas when you're on the ball and maybe if two guys around you tackling, you're all moving the same. So you're covering the same ground, but you're going to be a lot more tired because you have to, it's much more cognitively um, demanding when you're unpredicted attacks coming in and you're trying to twist and turn and go. So that's always something to say that how you perceive and the mindset and the psychology you have during a game that can very much influence how you perceive your energy to be throughout a game. 
Uh, that's very good, David. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess just to be as efficient with what you have. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's only so there's only so good you need your one K score to be, or your Bronco test, or whatever test your coach does with you. Um, yeah. There's only there's only like getting that that down to like as low as possible really shouldn't be a target of a GA player. Like, get it down to a reasonable like if it's six seven minutes, obviously there's something alarmingly wrong. But you'll know that by probably looking at someone. Um, yeah. But like apart from that, the energy you have is it of a of okay? We'll just even say a moderate standard. And if you use that like very efficiently, you'll you find it you'll be you'll have you'll have plenty of that energy in the tank. Going down and doing endless runs of the pitch and thirty and forty minutes of endurance stuff is, in my opinion, you know, it's nonsense. It's, it's crazy. Um, and I think, as you said, you know the one Ks and five Ks and all these um, elements we see being used. There's always this idea is like, okay, it needs to be better. You need to improve it. Where I tend to not look at stuff like that, where I tend to work more within bandwidths. Say for the 1K, if it's an all-out 1K max, if one of my guys to be the elite level, maybe I want them falling between 320 and 340. You know what I mean? If someone's running a 320, do I want them to go sub three minutes? Like, fuck no. You know what I mean? They're, they're good. There's, you get to a stage with any of these characteristics, like you're as good at that as you need to be for this sport. Let's move on and look at something else. So one way I conceptualize training with um, people. So there's a few different ways. Obviously, this is kind of taken in out of context. But when I look at a player and I have to decide, okay, we're going into the next four, five, six-week training block, whatever it may be, and obviously, whether there's going to be matches and what part of the season we're in will have some influence. But I always ask myself, what is the current limiting factor in this player's performance? What's the biggest limiting factor in this player's performance? So, yes, you know, we might want to improve their strength. It might could do with being a bit more powerful. It could do with having a bigger aerobic capacity. But for this player, what quality, if I improved over the next six weeks would have the biggest transfer and cause the biggest improvement in their performance. So that may be body composition. It may be, look, they're not fit enough. Yeah, they could do with being stronger, but that's, it's not their strength that's the biggest limiting factor. At this time, they're just not fit enough. So let's work on that. Let's specialize in that for a little while. Now, you can, there are times where we'll look in the bigger context. Uh, we might have a goal, okay, in a year's time, we need to be here. So therefore, we're sacrificing this quality for a few months so we can enhance this and maintain that to work on that. But if it's just, you know, someone's like, my performance needs to improve. I have a big match coming up in six weeks. Championship is there. I'm not where I need to be. I'm not firing on all cylinders. I don't give a fuck about six months down the line. I just want to be as best I can for that match. That's where you look at what is the current limiting factor? How do I improve that? And then once you have that limiting factor improved, say you're three weeks, they're back in the bandwidth Do you need to be. So you do that. You say, this is where you currently are. This is where we need you to be. If you, once you fall within here, okay, you've done that three weeks earlier than expected. We have another three weeks to match. Let's audit you again. What's your next biggest limiting factor? That one is fine. We've solved out your aerobic capacity. We'll just maintain that for three weeks because you're in the bandwidth you need to be in to get as much as you can from that. Oh, maybe it's your power. Now it's your acceleration is the issue. Let's do that for three weeks and while maintaining this other quality we've improved and then you're giving them the best chance of getting the big... So I think a lot of guys 
and girls if they self-audited themselves like that and had an honest conversation with themselves and say their managers and their coaches and even their peers is at this time, what is my biggest limiting factor? Or what if I improved would lead to the biggest improvement in my performance? And that might be your skill level. You might, you might say, actually, fitness is probably not holding me back. I just need to learn to tackle better or kick better or whatever it may be. And that's what you look to improve over the next while. But that's one way I like to conceptualize. There are certain scenarios where it's very useful just to think of what's the biggest limiting factor. Let's work on that. We still work on the other ones to a lesser degree. We don't let them go to the wayside but that's where our primary focus in. That's what's holding me back. Let's improve that for the next few weeks. Assess if it improved performance and then rinse and repeat from there. Yeah, that makes, that's perfect. And as you say, everyone will have a, will have a slight different variance there, what their, what their sole focus should be. You know, other lads will, will improve at a faster speed. And you know, not everyone, like, like you said, 320 of a 1k you don't really need it any lower than that like you know what i mean no. if, that's, if that's the case go and do running as a sport yeah do you know what i mean at that stage your aerobic capacity is more than enough so we see these guys doing 5ks and 1ks and 3ks and everything at the moment once you get to a certain level in those your aerobic capacity is big enough that's not your limiting factor now having a big aerobic capacity is brilliant because everything else relative then comes down in terms of relative difficulty but once that's done okay How's your repeated sprint ability? How's your buffering capacity? That's, that's, let's work on that. And guess what? When you actually go to work on the repeated sprint ability, your, those kind of shorter, sharper sprint endurance type running, you're, you're like, yeah, but my aerobic capacity, because I'm not doing 1Ks or 5Ks now, they're going to maintain this repeated sprint work will maintain or even improve your aerobic capacity further. So I think when it comes to the energy system development, people think very much in an on and off switch that, you know, this is aerobic, this is anaerobic, this is PC or creatine phosphate or whatever it may be. They don't work as on and off. They work as dials. It's more of a dimmer light. You're just, when you do a certain type of exercise, you just dim down one and dim up the other, but they're all still working together and they're all still being challenged all the time. Yeah. It's, at, uh, it's an ongoing cycle. It's not just one or the other, as you said. And it's, uh, that, look, that is the coach's job to understand which is which. Um, but from a player's point of view, know that the, perceiving yourself to be doing more fitness um, by running laps to the pitch and that kind of thing might not carry over a whole pile to your game. And the one thing um, with the fitness component, if we're talking about the conditioning, there seems to be this perception that you have to do every session 100% effort. And, you know, this I don't like that idea. It's like there is a lot of merit to going in and doing you know, a two, three K run at 70% effort, just tipping along nice, easy pace, not that challenging. Like a lot of people been giving out about teams doing five Ks and whatever. The five K can have merit. If I go out and run a five K, say it takes me at a nice, easy pace, 30 minutes, 30, 35 minutes, like very easy pace, not challenging. People are like, yeah, but it's, you know, you're just not getting you ready for the game. It's like, no, but what, what do we know? Some of the classic adaptations to that style of training is, we know that we're getting increased um, blood flow to the working muscles, increased um, angiogenesis. So we're increasing the capillarization. We're building more capillaries, more blood vessels in the legs. We're increasing um, our efficiency, all these type of things, all these adaptations that then when you go and do your high-intensity repeated running, your interval-style running, hit running, potentiate the adaptations you get from that. So you've built up 
bigger capillary stores, better blood flow metrics. So then when you really need to challenge the muscles that you're working at maximum intensity, the infrastructure is there. You've already built it. And there's nothing wrong with going out for a nice, easy jog, which psychologically isn't challenging, that the athlete doesn't, like, you know, when you go to a sprint hit session, you have to psych yourself up and you're like, this is going to fucking hurt, but I need to get through it. And it needs pain. Go out for a nice, steady jog, no headphones in, take in a bit of nature if possible. Psychologically, you're still getting some great adaptations that will potentiate further adaptations down the road, but it can be a nice form of just active recovery and a psychological break for a lot of athletes. Yeah. Yin and yang of, of the whole thing that we're not always go boom, boom, boom. It's just nice to bring it down a bit too. Um, no, David, that really, that really, um, that sums up everything, okay? Um, that's a really comprehensive view of strength conditioning for a GA athlete. And thank you for giving up your time. Um, now, I do have one or two questions, right? But there's just one in particular I want to get there, right? Um, I'm sure if it's a coach or a player, but it says, how to make GA drills more realistic? Example, add pressure or unpredictability. Um, how would you approach something like that? I'm just a great fan of game-based scenarios, great game-based coaching. It's like you want to make them more game realistic. Well, then turn it into a game. And I don't say that bluntly, but there's very few. Yes. So if you're asking from the coach perspective, like, what are you trying to develop? Like, oh, I'm trying to develop this skill, you know, whatever it may be, or this tactic we want to use. Like, fine. How do you develop any skill? You break it down first. You practice the mechanics. You know, you, you make sure you can actually do it. Then you try to add difficulty, like, okay, well, now do it in a, uh, do it faster. Now do it in this unpredictable way. And ultimately, what you're trying to get at the end is like, now I need you to execute it in the game. Well, if you want to add in that kind of unpredictability and chaotic nature of sport, just do a small-sided game. Any skill drill, anything that's just about skill, can be done in the game scenario. I don't see how it can't be. You can leverage and manipulate the size of the pitch the number of men or, or and women the ratio um either side the conditions whether they're allowed hot solar or whatever you can manipulate any of these games if you're creative enough to develop and create an environment that you want because ultimately you want the players to perform the skills unconsciously autonomously you don't want them to be thinking okay this player is running at me they're faced that way that means i solo with this foot and then turn this way you want them just to do it off instinct, to react, get the ball in their hand, unconsciously read the situation, um, process that without any conscious thought, just subconsciously process that and then react. So in my opinion, it's like always just bring it back to a small-sided game or can I turn this into a game? Um, I, I don't, if, if I'm trying to think of any kind of skills that you, you, you can't encourage that. Like what kind of skill in GA? Because there's not that many skills when you, you think about it. You're, you know, you kick, solo, hop, you tackle, you, that's how you pass. There's not that many of them that can't be built into a game quite easily, a game situation. So, yeah, always bring it back to a small side of the game. And players, players like to play. You know, players don't really enjoy doing the drills where it's just them. And, and especially when you've only, say, an hour in their amateur sports, how many drills do we do where it's two lines, two players go out and back for, say, it takes them to do 10 seconds to spend the drill and you have 18 players just watching them. So at any one time, at any 10-second period, you have 18 players watching and two practicing a skill. Let's turn it into a game-based scenario where everyone can practice a skill all the time. So now 
you've gone from over the course of an hour, players might be getting 15 minutes of actual contact, ball contact and skill practicing to close to an hour is what you want. So you have four times the amount of exposure to practicing those skills. You add that up over a course of months and a couple of seasons, four times the amount of exposure to skill practice is going to make a hell of a difference. And it comes back to the, the, the most important aspect of all this is transference, as we spoke about earlier on. What's going to be more transferable than actually playing the sport? Okay, playing maybe yeah. six on six versus 15 on 15, the transference is still going to be huge. It's far, going to be far better than um, like a, a makeshift drill that you could. And, and you know, some coaches do put great imaginations up into them, but like small sided games are, in my opinion, from a conditioning point of view, and from this, this question was like unpredictability, um, that point of view as well is going to have the most carryover, I think. Yeah, 100%. Okay. Um, David, I've kept you for long enough and you have gave a very, very thorough uh, overview of strength conditioning for a GE athlete. Um, the big rocks, as we spoke about, so body composition and uh, a- adequate skill, skill levels and maximal speed and so on and so forth. So thank you very, very much for giving up your time tonight. No, I, I really appreciate it, Dara. And it's something I, I enjoy talking about. And I, I realize some people probably might be like yeah but he didn't tell me how much weight i need to put on a bar and what exact exercises i i need to do but i said it, there's so many ways to do it so it's good to talk about in a global way and um, if anyone just is wants kind of more nuts and bolts just either message me on any of my social medias or email it's david at synapseperformance.e or synapseperformance or even if you google my name and ga afterwards i've done a few other talks and um podcast appearance where say i've gone into like exact or you these exercises are what I use and everything nuts and bolts. But no, I hope people just get some value and um, don't ever hesitate to reach out if I can help in any way. No, um, at the moment we're only on three listeners, but as our as our audience starts to grow, more and more people will <laughs> benefit from it. Uh, in particular, David has a very good one on agility for GA players. Was that your own podcast episode? Was that were you a guest on someone's for that actually? Um. I believe I was a guest. So I think I have spoken about it on my own podcast. I've done a solo one. I've wrote probably the best resource I've done on that is an article on the website. Yeah. It's called Why Do GA Players Train Agility Wrong? Yeah. Um, part one of two. And part two is will be authored at some point. It's just turning more into a thesis than a, an article at this <laughs> stage. It's Agility is a rabbit hole. You can go very, very far down, it seems. But um, yeah, and I, I've spoke about it on some podcasts, I think, as well. So if you search my name, GA and Agility, I'm sure it'll come up. Yeah, no, that's, I, I found um, that one in particular very informative. So um, yeah, that's it for tonight. As I said, thank you to David. Make sure and check out all his work over in Synapse Performance. Um, really, really worth your while if you're in that GA world, okay? Um, so that is all for tonight. David, thank you for jumping on and take care, everyone. Pleasure, thank you.